I think first and foremost, people matter. You have to stay 100% focused on your people. You know, Martin and I have talked around the three Ps of a company or organization right. around profit, purpose, and people. And all three are so important. You can't be successful unless you focus on all three. But really, there's only one that should be your North Star or that can be your North Star, right? And I think the lesson there is when you put people first, they will take care of your profit. They will take care of your purpose. And sadly, I don't think every company or organization has figured that out or choose not to for whatever reason. But I think a lot of veterinary practices and a lot of companies in this profession learn that people are your most important resource. Welcome to Blunt Dissection the original and longest-running long-form interview show in veterinary medicine, where we delve into the minds of the creme de la creme of our profession and beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Dave Nichol. On each episode, I have the privilege of dissecting the success stories of world-class talent, those who have scaled the heights of achievement and are shaping the future of our field. Together we'll explore their stories, their life-changing decisions, thought patterns, processes, habits, anything that enable them to operate at the very top of their game. Our goal? To give you the insights, the inspiration, the aha moments that you can use to carve your own pathway to success in this incredible field we call veterinary medicine. Because remember, everyone, you included, has a story. So sit back, take notes if you wish, and let's get ready to dissect success on another episode of the Blunt Dissection podcast. Welcome to another episode of Blunt Dissection. I am very excited and we're sat in a room overlooking, I like to see set, overlooking the... It is beautiful. It is beautiful, isn't it? How would you describe the scene? Lyle, you set the scene for once. It's me that sets the scene normally, but you guys... And I say for once, like you've been guilty of not setting the scene before, which is unkind because you've never you've not been on the podcast before. So why don't I allow my guests to set the scene and say it rather kinder than I said it before? More kindly. God, I'm butchering this. I mean, we're looking out over the big sand lake. This is Orlando's big sand lake. Oh. Yeah, by the way. Big sand lake. Big sand lake. That was a quick Google. Yeah. It was a quick Google. Okay. And, and uh, convention centers over to our left. Yes. Spent so much of the week yeah we spent like what four or five days here talking our butts off interacting networking filling our heads being drained and we booked a podcast interview as the last possible thing to do before getting on flights yeah. out of here that was a good idea wasn't it yeah who dumbass idea was that yeah that'd be brilliant mm. and p.s you know it's we shuttled between two hotels and from this vantage point 20 some odd stories up you can actually see the two hotels are remarkably far apart. They are incredibly far <laughs> apart. Everyone here will have walked about four miles a day for the last however many days. Anyway, it has been a great show. It is VMX we're talking about, of course, and the voices you're hearing. One may be familiar to your previous guest, second time on the show, Martin Trobwerner. So welcome back to the show. Thanks, Dave. Who's gracing us with a blunt section t-shirt, which uh, I like. Yeah, Thank yeah. you. I need to get one. Flying the colors. One of those. We'll make that happen. Like that. We'll make that happen. What size are you? Size t shirt? I'm afraid to admit on the, on your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But I would be a men's small. So. Oh, I, and I'm a men's small as well. 
those are out. Yeah. Because I stole them all to wear. You stole them. There's workout gear. Yeah. 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 I'm like, okay, how's XL? No, (laughs) I'll put it in a wash and I'll shrink it down. Send something else. Okay. So that voice is the uh, unfortunate when it comes to t shirt sizings and availability of blunt section stock t shirts, but Matt Saloy, not Matt Salois. Only when in Europe. Only when in Europe. So these two gentlemen, uh, thank you for giving me some time. Uh, all joshing aside, two of the smartest brains and different experience. Martin coming from a very... How would you describe yourself, Martin? Oh, gosh. How much time do we have? No. A minute. Right. On the veterinary side, I mean, I'm uh, always been sort of curious about the business of business. And so I'm on the business side, listening and solving problems for vet practices uh, nerdy data stuff, and more recently digging into practice finance. Okay. The financials of the practice. By All right. Very entrepreneurial bent. Yes. Uh, built up uh, Vet Success, possibly one of the companies nobody's heard of, but has been very well known, very well understood, perhaps behind the scenes in the industry. Would that be fair? Yeah. And I got to know you and introduced you through the fabulous Dr. Mary Gardner and the data you've produced has influenced a lot of things that people might not be aware of. Exited, sold that business, and now you're um, building another business because yep. serial entrepreneurism seems to be your thing. Um, but also insight and worked alongside the veterinary profession for a long while. On the opposite side of the court, and we are set up, it's in here, in a very adversarial manner. I am the umpire. Oh, boy. Oh. On, on one half, which is really bad news, if I'm the umpire... <laughs> One half we've got, we've got to my left, we have Martin, and to my right, we have Matt. Now, Matt, you have a minute. I do have a minute. You do. Um, how would you describe the work you do? Yeah, so I usually use three words to describe myself. Uh, husband, father, economist. That economist label is my badge, my nerd badge, my badge of honor there. Four kids, three cats, a new puppy, one, one wife. <laughs> All that, that is enough for me. And I'll just add about Martin, I think he is definitely a thought leader for veterinary medicine and probably one of the most genuine souls I've had the benefit of getting to know over the years. So I'm thrilled to do this podcast today. That's amazing. Uh, not very adversarial. I was going to say, so don't mind my saying. I'm softening the blow. So much I'm a little concerned of going head to head with Martin, honestly. I'm actually <laughs> really worried that that was like the full snake mode there. You he saw is, that. He is, I was like, playing nice. Your what, face is going to kick you in the nuts any second. <laughs> what's happening here? <laughs> well, that's kind of. I'll, I'll add Martin is closest to the window, by the way. So <laughs> I just, is that good for an exit? <laughs> the, the, first, the first defenestration on the live podcast. <laughs> we, we are 30 floors up. <laughs> so funny. So, and I think this is true of both of you. I think you're both thought leaders. I've certainly, Matt, I've wanted you on the show for ages, and we've had a couple of near misses because your background in, in generating a lot of economic data and insight into what's happening trend wise in veterinary medicine has always been fascinating to read and very interesting to me. So, the reason this show got going was because I got wind that these gentlemen had put on a session at an event where they were talking about why now is the right time for a renaissance in independent practice ownership. And as independent practice owner myself, that got my attention. So, guys, why did you come to this title in the first instance? And what gives you that sense that now is the time? And uh, Matt is looking at Martin first, so we're going to go there. Yeah, so a little over a year ago, I had this experience, right? So now we're talking to practice owners about their 
bookkeeping and they're getting practice financials under control. And I had three or four conversations that kind of all went the same way over a very short period of time. I start the conversation with the practice owner. I said, tell me about your practice. And they all went the same way. I've been in practice. I graduated 15, 20 years ago, 12, 15, 20 years ago. I worked in a practice I loved. The culture was great. The owner sold to corporate. They promised us nothing would change. Everything changed, right? This That's the laugh line, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the laugh line, right? Everything changed. And now I want to go out on my own and do it right. And in fact, just this morning, Matt, you shared your own story from VMG, right? Yeah, Where- just in the last few weeks, we've had three former members uh, who had sold their practice, left left VMG and uh, came back because they reopened a new practice and they wanted to rejoin VMG. And so, you know, these anecdotes are piling up here. And that's when you move from anecdote to trend and you start to see that there's something going on here. Yeah. That's something I've heard repeated and you're seeing that. And you know, I'm from the UK and we're, I think we've been a little bit further down the corporatization trend for a little bit longer. It seemed to start earlier. It's one of the few trends I'm aware of that started that and long colonialization started a bit sooner than it happened in the United States. And that's something, a strong trend in the UK as well of people who are coming back into the market. They've worked their earnout periods. They're young, still got a ton of love for the profession but they see the opportunity because they're now moneyed up experienced up and are coming back and playing on cheat mode almost from the start and taking back clients and Mm. that's certainly is anecdote i'd be really interested if there was data to sort of back that up but it it is a very common narrative that's developed out there is there some place that can confirm more yeah, I mean, I'm sure we could start adding up these anecdotes and start forming our own data series. But if I look back on just VMG as the organization and think about the numbers of people that have been doing that, we can actually see that that start to rise. And, you know, the other side of this, too, is now it's a really hard time for corporate practices. That's the flip side of this. We're seeing them really struggle in the moment. A lot of that doing with the cost of capital and the, the flip side of the value of cash right now has changed. A cash is much more expensive than it was that's a few right. years ago. Can you speak to why that's impacting? Because a lot of the listeners to this show will be independent owners. I mean, there's a very broad spectrum, broad church will listen to the show, but either curious about leadership or ownership or business or relatively seasoned in operating a business, but not so savvy when it comes to money and, and the way that money works. Would you speak a little bit more to why that's impacting corporate and why it's impacting corporate more than perhaps independent practice? Yeah, it uh, comes back to interest rates fundamentally. You look at the federal funds rate as the source of everything as a starting point there. And obviously that rose to combat inflation, but that had a trickle down effect throughout the economy and it's working. We're seeing inflation abate, which is really great, but for the last three years, it's been worryingly high. And that translated into the cost of capital, investing in capital. You've got a higher interest rate when you're borrowing, the cost of borrowing increases. And so now it becomes a lot more expensive. But this was, for many, many years, the strategy for private equity in general, corporate practices, veterinary practices specifically in our profession, is that's how they gobbled up practices. Interest rates were negative for a brief period of time. And that just enabled these large behemoths to go in and gobble up practices. And that's how they grew just by devouring them, 
cash flows were flowing, so they were good, but now no longer is that the position. So they're trying to figure out how to go from buying practices to managing practices and developing profitable businesses. And that's a very different skill set. What are the key determinants of success then in each category? If you were to say top three, what are the skills that they need in each of those situations? What are they now? I think, Martin, you did this really well in our couple of our presentations, the three things that the top three, risk management, you'll have to remind me what those top three were. I'll have to remember them. Yeah. 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 Uh, one was managing risk, right? Yeah, that's right. And that's hard to do. Part of it's a, an emotional and a feeling thing, right? But um, there's right. also a, a skill set to doing that. Yeah, it's my my friend Bree Silva says, uh, confront your inner chicken little, right? Yes. It's like if if you're one of those people where the, the sky is always falling, yep. practice ownership might not be for you. Yeah. Certainly, you know, learning practice financials, right? Which is how I come to this is, you know. Financial acumen, that was the that, other that, one. That's right. Finan- yeah. Like just knowing, just knowing your numbers. There's no substitute for knowing your numbers and it mm-hmm. can be, that is a muscle that can be exercised. And, totally. you know, Matt and I've had this really interesting conversation. Like, can you learn this stuff? And yeah, most of it you really can learn and just has to be practiced. Right? It's skills and the skills that are never, they're rarely prioritized because the clinical beast is all consuming. Right. I mean, you know, when you spend your day firefighting the operation, it's kind of hard to get your head out of the weeds yeah. and sort of think about strategy and direction and and planning. Okay. So, what I thought would be a fun exercise would be to take the concept of it's a it's a, a great time for a renaissance and independent practice and put it through the grinder of strategic planning or strategic assessment and walk through a few sections of a strategic planning process. So we're going to break this out, see how it goes, see the concept, we're going to play with this. But the first thing, if we put general practice or independent practice or the veterinary marketplace, but for clinical practice marketplace, narrow it to that so we, we stay roughly on point, under the microscope and say, let's set some time parameters. Let's go back as far as COVID, not before, a lot of stuff changed there so that feels like a, a good place to launch off from to present day to forecasting what is reasonable into the future three to five years something like that so okay we're maybe three back up to five in the future and that can be a framework around this and the first questions are going to be okay what achievements what did we accomplish in going through this last three years what stand out as achievements that have been remarkable in veterinary medicine yeah i mean the the one that jumps off the page to me notably is just like surviving COVID, right? Like in what wasn't exactly overnight, but pretty much almost overnight, the world changed. Lots of unknowns followed by a spike in demand, which we can have the conversation about whether it was new demand or pent up demand or whatever, but, and the resilience of practice teams, the agility of practice teams. And I know it felt really rough at the time and really like a firefight, but in retrospect, teams that made it through COVID have a lot to be proud of. Proud? Yeah, I guess proud. Like, 100%. Like, like, proud yeah, of, I mean, right? Like the reality I mean, is, is this was the most inhospitable environment anyone's ever found themselves in. And 
it is cause for celebration because veterinary teams delivered veterinary care in the most difficult situation imaginable. Patients were still in need, clients were still in need, and it happened, and they did this while keeping people safe. Doesn't mm -hmm. mean that people didn't get sick and there weren't yep. casualties from COVID, there were, but by far and large, veterinary teams innovated on how to deliver that care by splitting it into separate teams, by curbside care, leaning in on, on telemedicine and other ways to deliver that care. So it's a tremendous achievement, I think. Yeah, new technology was, ado was, ado was yeah. adopted, right? Yeah. Online booking. It ushered in a whole era of things that would be unthinkable in a time frame. My own practice revenue dropped 75% overnight. Uh, that was just the reality when Boris Johnson went on and said, guys, we're shutting everything. And everybody had to close their doors. And and that was that. And it was... They were dark days for the first few months. Yeah. So, you know, I was oh, at the AVMA at the time, yeah. and we were just genuinely worried that this was going to kill so many practices. Because when you're shut down, you might not reopen, right? But that quickly twisted, right? Yeah. You maneuvered through the summer of 2020 into the fall, and suddenly you started to see the opposite situation when veterinary practices were listed as essential businesses and remained open, and then just the, the spikes in demand started to follow through. We were reflecting last night a little bit on that time. And, you know, in our own business, I was at Vet Success at the time. In our own business, we put sort of three plans in place. Like, what do we need to do for our people? What do we need to do for our clients? And what do we need to do for the industry? And you mentioned being at the AVMA at the time, you and I collaborated yeah. to bring the industry tracker online really quickly. COVID brought us together, Martin. I know. <laughs> so that tracker that's on the AVMA website is powered through, that's VetSource data. That's, that's, that's VetSource data that. that's doing that. Yeah. Uh -huh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. It came out of the sort of people saying like, what's happening, right? How do we transfer change from anecdotal to data and we got great feedback on that because every week it sort of soothed people a little bit to see that you know while you heard doom and gloom stories visits were held or started to climb revenue held started to climb and it wasn't quite as disastrous operationally it was disastrous yeah. but economically it wasn't quite it as disastrous it felt at the time that demand had gone up. I went back and looked at my practice management software in terms of number of new client registrations. It certainly was up, but it wasn't up 20, 30, 40, 50%, like people were saying. And I've gone around all over the country. Like I was counting the number of states. I've visited 30 states now in the United States with speaking engagements. And I've asked the room after room after room. So did demand go up or down? Like, it went up, went way up. So well, how much did it go up? Has anyone actually looked at numbers? And not a single person has come back with a, a number from their practice management system on the ground, which might be one of the uncomfortable truths that we'll move on to in a second. But what was the aggregate that you were seeing? Do you have a truth that was in there about how much demand did go up? Yeah, truth is, what are they saying in the eyes of the beholder, right? So I think there are multiple truths out there, but there's certainly an economic truth. And I think to take a step back, you have to understand this was a very confusing time for our economy and still remains so, right? The echoes of COVID remain. We're still on the path to recovery. And part of the challenges of the economic arrows continue to point in multiple different directions. And so people, because they're humans, try to explain the situation. And anecdotes and individual experiences can lead people to believe this is what's happening everywhere, yes. right? And so now that that's the big picture, the, the, the smaller picture, what's happened, what happened in veterinary medicine 
is, and for an economist, there's a difference between demand and consumption, right? For us, it means a very different thing. Demand is growth at a specific price point. Consuming is you're consuming at any price point. And so just because you see people consuming more veterinary services, if the price is increasing, that doesn't necessarily mean demand is increasing, right? So you have to be careful there. But we certainly saw, and Martin touched on a couple of these, there was pent-up demand. People couldn't get into the practice for months. It was difficult to get an appointment for months, if not a year or so. And so that happened. And we know that people spent more time at home but part of that pent-up demand is like, remember, the teams were splitting themselves in half in many instances. That's right. right. Yeah. So you had half the number of people able to, to deliver the service. That's right. It's because if somebody got COVID, you didn't want to wipe out the entire business, right? So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, for sure. We know people were paying more attention to their pets. Yes, people got pets. If you've heard me talk, you know, I call the pet adoption boom one of the biggest myths in our profession. It just did not happen. The data show that. It doesn't mean adoptions didn't happen. They just weren't falling from the sky that a lot of the media and the headlines made it believe. People were asking for more services too. I think VetSource came out and was able to help give some clarification from the data that we saw that line items per invoice expanded. So people were getting more things done when they were going into the veterinary practice. Part of me wonders if that is that was fascinating because I don't see suddenly the veterinary profession got good at, better at communicating or selling per se, particularly since there were curbside and communication got worse because of that. And nobody in veterinary medicine is good at selling. But I wonder how much that is the awareness of an animal being sick earlier, therefore the intervention being more dramatic, more frequently. Certainly anecdotally in my practice, nothing trivial was walking in the door. We were not allowed to do vaccines, of course, but we were filled to the rafters with stuff that was probably coming in much sooner than it would have been because owners were much more aware of it than they would have been because they saw the cat puke six times in a day, whereas normally it would have puked on the carpet, it would have dried out by the time they got home, regardless of the one square foot of carpet that existed in the building. So I wonder how much of that you know, it's interesting. It's really interesting. And and so that's the demand component. Mm. You, you brought this up, Martin. The, the supply component's important because our ability to deliver veterinary care was hampered. And so that adds to the complexity, splitting into teams, curbside care, taking payments over the phone, deep cleaning exam rooms between visits, only allowing a certain number of clients in at a time. This hampered the effective output that a average veterinary practice could could achieve there. So you had these cyclical spikes in demand coupled with frictions hampering the ability to deliver veterinary care. And it was a really challenging situation. And on, I mean, on the demand side, at least some portion of the economy, there was much more disposable income, right? Restaurants were closed, no travel. And stimulus. Yeah. And oh, let's not forget the boatloads of cash right. that were shoveled into people's bank accounts if, by the government. If there was something falling from the sky, it was cash, yeah. right? So yeah. you do the math that for the average American household, income increased by 30% for a period of time. It's a, because, it's such a disaster. Well, <laughs> well it, we're, you know, the aftermath was inflation, right? And we, but it was wholly, I think that you'll get different opinions in different economists, but our economy was in jeopardy. And I think we learned a tough lesson from the 08 recession that policymakers didn't respond deep enough, fast enough, which is why the 08 recession was so protracted. And I think that stimulus helped make COVID probably the briefest recession in our recent economic history. But it wasn't without costs. We had to pay for that. Yeah, and, and we may well pay for that for some time. And 
you know, the, the, America seems like a very expensive place to come now. And there's certain, we were having this conversation That's yesterday right. about there seems to be a, a gap between the ease with which dollars can be generated here, but also the costs, you know, the salaries that are on offer now, everything just feels like it's higher, but higher than the rate of, what's the burgernomics? Like food is still not a million miles different, but the cost of veterinary medicine, both consuming it and delivering it, both seem to have jumped fairly dramatically compared to certainly the United Kingdom and, and possibly other places. And where it also jumped, but it feels like there's a bigger jump here. And that, again, that may be just storytelling on my part. So there's there's no data. Well, I think there's multiple sides of that story, right? So I think we can come back to it. Yes, the cost has been rising in, in the US, a lot of that driven by food, energy, shelter. Some has come down, shelter has not. But the other side, the UK economy is not in great shape. No, right? no, no. The European economy is not in great shape. And so the value of the dollar is a lot higher for you because of the condition of your economy too. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that hurts. Coming yes, this way across the pond. So. Right. It hurt me to say it. I'm really yeah. sorry. Yeah. This this room's an upgrade, not paid. <laughs> <laughs> so next question then, or moving on from there, because you mentioned lessons learned, and I think that's something that okay, so we we sifted through, we've come through this period. Not all lessons get captured, but for you, what are the lessons, the important lessons that you hope we've learned from the preceding three years? I think first and foremost, people matter. You have to stay 100% focused on your people. You know, Martin and I have talked around the three Ps of a company or organization right. around profit, purpose, and people. And all three are so important. You can't be successful unless you focus on all three. But really, there's only one that should be your North Star or that can be your North Star, right? And I think the lesson there is when you put people first, they will take care of your profit. They will take care of your purpose. And sadly, I don't think every company or organization has figured that out or choose not to for whatever reason. But I think a lot of veterinary practices and a lot of companies in this profession learn that people are your most important resource. And we've become a lot more focused on well-being. Yes, we've got a lot of things to do there to improve that, but we're much more focused on burnout and other issues in this profession. Yeah. And I think also, you know, the technology adoption. Now, part of this was going to happen already anyway. You know, the, the ecosystem around vet med has just become far more robust. Data connectivity is easier. You're on second, third, fourth generation from, you know, the client communication technology is easier. I was uh, reminiscing with somebody uh, during the week about, you know, the old Vet Street product, which is many people probably don't even remember at this point, which is the original, like sending postcards to clients, right? Uh, and how data connectivity for that. So the ecosystem and, you know, the adoption of technology during COVID, I think actually accelerated some of the problem solving, you know, some of the problems that could be solved by technology were solved faster, better, smarter, and quicker just because there was this massive demand for- What's the lesson in there that you would take from that? I mean, sort of, self-serving for somebody on the technology side is that like technology is your friend and sometimes you just need to pull the trigger are we better you know that was always one of the things that veterinary medicine was very slow to adapt mm -hmm. very conservative very scared you know <gasps> facebook what's that or you know a website what's that kind of thing it's a blue underlined thing on the that's a link you know those <laughs> those are conversations when going on much longer in veterinary medicine than than in other industries 
Has that changed? Is that have we learned that lesson? Maybe not, but, but like I think certainly some people have really adopted technology. You see some of the you know vet practice new builds, the two point you know vet practice two point where you super tech enabled check in online. Yeah. The workflow is managed. The big PIMS companies are all talking about workflow now as a primary you know. Driver, driver efficiency. That's and right. And and so enough staff workflow matters. Well, and so efficiency is something this is like something we need to spend some time talking about, right? Because, you know, the demand for veterinarians, is there a shortage of veterinarians? Maybe, maybe not. Could some of that be solved by efficiencies? And where do those efficiencies come from? Maybe that's the third lesson. I mean, they certainly could be tied to the second one around the importance of technology, but I think if I reflect back on the, the past three years, never ever has the importance of productivity and efficiency been as prioritized as it is today in yeah. this profession. Yeah, that's good. And so I think that's happened for a number of reasons, but perhaps the most important one has been the labor situation that we're in and the increasing understanding that productivity unlocks a lot of doors for a practice. Um, and a lot of opportunity for growth and business improvement. And you also do it for your people's sake, bringing it back to the people. If you can make it easier for your teams to deliver veterinary care, there's a well-being dividend to that. That shouldn't be lost on people as well. You don't drive productivity just to drive profitability. Right. You do it to make people happier because suddenly they're not running so hard and so fast. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they can have lunch. They can have a pee That's break right. without the use of a catheter. Yeah, you know, it's... That's a great visual. <laughs> Thank you. Thank You're you welcome. for that image. You know, I've had the conversation often with friends about who should be the beneficiary of technology, right? Like if you think about just uh, the workplaces that many of us work in, you know, there's now there's Slack and, you know, collaboration software and Trello and project management software and all of this stuff that makes communication faster, project management faster, like the collaborative software, right? And yet employers seem to feel like they should be the only beneficiaries of that. Like, what if I can do the same amount of work that I was doing two years ago that took me five days a week and I can do it in four days a week? And yet the expectation seems to be that, you know, you, the employer should be the only beneficiary of that, right? That's actually right there feels like that's actually a thing I'd like to focus on a bit more because that feels like a really valuable thing to dig into because if we're going with the premise here that people, uh, technology, efficiency, and productivity are really things that are important and we are perfectly aware that there's not enough people, we don't need to, to repeat that or rehash that, then the question becomes, okay, how? How does one get to being that level of efficiency where where you, you do get all of those knock-on benefits? What are the practical steps or the things that the practice owners listening or the associates listening can take and discuss with their teams and go, okay, if we took this almost as the critical issue, you know, because the, the uncomfortable truth is there's not enough people in veterinary medicine. There's way more demand for a service than we are meeting curious as to how long that will last given prevailing economic winds but there's no shortage of work around that present well and, i mean matt's perspective may be let's make oh, a little little adversarial excellent matt's, excellent. matt's perspective may this be a little different this has all been a bit of right. home so my, far my, so yeah. like, like you're starting from an assumption that there aren't enough people 
Mm, okay. And let's go there. That that's certainly prevailing wisdom, right? Prevailing wisdom. Every talk, every everything is like, you know, there's not enough people and not enough people. Yeah. And and one of the smartest things I heard somebody say years and years ago, uh, one of your predecessors actually at the AVMA, you know, don't confuse the demand for veterinary education with the demand for veterinarians, mm. which is super interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, Words from another economist. Is that right? Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's complex, and this is what troubles people. And you have to separate the what feels like from the what really is. And that's also difficult too. You look at the labor situation, it's pretty binary. We don't have enough people. It's like, is the bathtub empty or is it full? You can look at that. The challenge is understanding why. Why is it we feel like we're short on people, we can't fill jobs, and then even more complex part of that is what do you do about it? And so a lot of the explanation for we don't have enough people people bring up the demand. We don't have enough people because demand increased and we need more people to meet that demand. But that's only a chapter in the story here. And it's a really misleading chapter because demand has a structural long-term trend to it and demand has a cyclical trend to it, just like a business cycle. You have ups and downs. And we went through the ups of 2021, 2022, and we're going through the downs right now. And so that cyclical spike in demand we saw post-COVID for the reasons that Martin talked about too, like cash flow, disposable income increase, you know, all those other reasons, that's come and gone. We're in a much softer level of demand right now. And yet people, openings, job openings, the need for people remain. To explain that, you gotta look at the labor supply. So why? Well, labor force participation decreased. In fact, if you look at the age 55 and above in veterinary medicine and outside veterinary medicine, they didn't come back. So many people retired early, they're gone. And so that has a trickle down effect throughout the labor market. Second reason is, is turnover. We have amongst the worst turnover rates of any profession. That is an issue. We have a retention fiasco on our hands. When you are losing on average 50% of your technicians in a year and you are constantly having to recruit, that is a goat rodeo. And it puts pressure on the need to recruit. It puts pressure to put a warm body in your practice. It's costly, time-consuming, as well as direct costs to go out there and try to find somebody. And then the third reason, it comes back to productivity. Our, we know, the data show, our productivity decline, not just in the U.S. economy, that's clear, but also in veterinary medicine. And so if productivity declines by 25%, it feels like you need 25% more people just to deliver the same amount of care you right. were before. And so how you address that looks very different when you understand the reasons why. Why did productivity decrease 25%? That would be something I, I would have a, if I come back with my gnashing teeth practice owner head on and say, oh, yeah, but the turnover thing, that feels very real. Productivity thing conceptually makes sense during COVID where there was all these barriers enforced and that made it awkward to do business but i don't understand why that would persist at this point in time and yeah. certainly it feels like in my own practice we're back as business as usual i would have a hard time accepting that as an argument for where we're at what's the counter drive like what does the data say and the reasons behind that yeah this goes back to the long hangover of COVID, i think and so you're right i mean there were those issues that have come and gone like we're no longer deep cleaning exam rooms or no longer taking payments over the phone those were the, some of the big drivers around yeah what caused it afterwards i think one of the biggest things is people just got used to a slower pace 
and you see this in appointment times, that they're increasing yeah. over time. And so people are seeing, DBMs and other professionals are seeing less patients per hour than they were before. That is real, and I think that is driven by, I mean, we've done that in my clinic for a long time, but I think that's driven by the focus on well-being as well, as sure. not seeing mm -hmm. a ton of new clients to try and not have people burning out more. And that also is a generational thing about the resilience of our generations, you know, the re reduction in resilience or the increase in fragility as people move through, um, or the expectation of you know the immediacy of gratification. I must be great now. I must be you know the hard work ethic that is required to get good at something is not the same as it once was. And again, I'm not I'm not saying that as anecdote. That's that's real. That's documented as best intentions from parental generations in a very comfortable, costive world that we now have relative to what previous generations had, that things like that have changed. But sorry, that interrupts the, the flow, but it makes sense that, yes, okay, I see that productivity issue. Yeah, but what you're saying is so important because now it starts to shed light on what are the strategies to fix that, right? right? And addressing productivity is gonna be the biggest challenge of our profession, probably of our economy, and you're not going to fix that by opening the floodgates and building more veterinary schools, by expanding class sizes, by introducing new tiers of labor. We talk a lot about a mid-level practitioner or, or different stages of something like that in this profession. Those are band-aids. Those don't fix the systemic issues of poor productivity. They'll keep grinding people. And they've through. they've also got long tails, right? It's not like you, Very can, long you tails. can't turn on a tap and create new veterinarians, right? Long lasting. And so I see a lot of proposals that try to bring solutions forward to address the challenges of today with these long tails. And what we need to be looking at is how do we address the challenge five years out? Those are the long run solutions we need to be focused on. Coupled with some of the, the cyclical challenges we're having in our economy, inflation and prices, you mentioned the cost of veterinary care becoming increasingly higher and higher. If we add a bunch of people to our labor force, what is the single most biggest cost center for every veterinary practice? Wage bill. It, it's wages, right? And so productivity becomes the key to unlock a lot of our problems. It, it has the well-being dividend. It has the profitability dividend. And it's got the patient care dividend because now you're effectively able to deliver more and better care to people and, and their pets. So two questions. One is a big one, and that is to get into the bread and butter of what productivity improvements look like mm. and how you see that playing out. Best practices, specifics would be amazing if there are thoughts on that. But ultimately, if you're doing less, and we're not, I mean, obviously, and this is a slightly mischievous question, but if people are doing less appointments, the cost per appointment per unit goes up in order to cover your cost base. If people want better salaries and better lifestyles, all of that comes, that's paid for by the client. And at the moment, it sounds like, if I'm hearing you right, the traditional old version of veterinary medicine thinking is, well, let's just try and generate more vets and put our prices up. And ultimately, the vets keep losing, the pet owners lose. It's still a stressful crapshoot for the practice ownership. That's the Band-Aid solution. So if that's not to be the solution, what is? I mean, married to what you're talking about in terms of the productivity, there's the concept of labor leverage. And so, so I talk to practices all the time about the practice finance. I said, doc, tell me about your practice. So I'm a $1.6 million grossing practice. I'm like, how many doctors are you? 
one, one and a half. How are you doing that? Oh, I've got eight techs, right? And so letting your staff work to the highest level that they can work and leveraging that time, doctors only doing doctor stuff. And it's it's not the highest level that they're capable because they're capable of way more than what they're currently doing. So 100%. That they're legally able That's to correct. work to. That's right. And there's data around that. I'm so glad you led with that, Martin, because there's papers out there and JABMA and others that show the most efficient, best performing practices have more technicians per FTE DVM. If there's a crisis on our hands of not having enough, it's credentialed technicians. 100%. Yeah, totally agree. And that, that is what every practice owner listening to this will be screaming, but we don't have enough technicians. And it comes back also, so yes, we need to expand those programs and get more credentialed out there, but I'll bring it back to turnover and keeping technicians engaged and empowered too. This is where I say good news, there's a labor shortage because in the last three years, we haven't seen as much improvement as we have in technician wages and earnings. They are making much more than they were, and yet it's still not enough because they're competing, we're competing for that labor market outside of veterinary medicine. And when a technician can leave a practice and go work for a fast food place and make as much or more, there's a real situation we have on our hands. And then we need to make sure that they're doing the things that they're trained and empowered to do, not be uh, sweepers or, or uh, poop picker-uppers alone, right? That they're actually giving vaccines, assisting in surgeries, and doing that pre-wellness exam. Yeah, because you will never be able to afford to pay a technician more than $15 an hour if they're doing $15 an hour work, which That's is correct. sweeping floors. Yeah. That's right. So there was a light bulb moment for me there was we need way more technician schools to produce these individuals, not more veterinary schools. And to do that, we need to make being a technician more attractive. Right. You can't just build programs and expect people to fill them, right? You've got to make sure that this is a, a career that's going to give them happiness and engagement over the long run. Which means DVMs need to be leaders in their businesses and hand over the reins a little bit. Absolutely. Economically, the cry for the last two years has been, I'm worth more. You have veterinarians not long out of college coming out, getting big sign-on bonuses saying, I'm worth more. You have salaries being paid and salaries being paid far in excess of the standard you know, 20% of production that with the systems are going into, haven't hope of being met, will have an impact on practice profitability. It does feel like we're a little bit hamstrung by the model that we have in our heads, the operating model in our heads. Economically, in your opinion, what do you think we've got to get to as a price point per hour to pay technicians? This, obviously, anything we say now will age badly with time. So perhaps if there's another way to anchor that to, you know, maybe it's the percentage of support staff bill that, that a practice would have being, like if it's right now, 22, 23%, something like that, maybe 25% of it, depending where you are. And doctor production is about 20%. And that uh, even may be a little low now if people are not covering their, their base. What needs to change in the model? And how do we change that? So is that, because as an owner, I'm like, well, it's all very well to say I'd love to pay them more, but I don't have a viable business if I jack that number up 20, 30% without cranking it to clients. Yeah. Wait, 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 wait. I mean, by letting them do more, presumably that frees up the veterinarian's time 
to do that's right more doctoring stuff that's how tech that's as technical yeah. as i get doctor <laughs> i you, like you it. do doctoring stuff you do doctoring stuff so right. you've got to make these hard changes in your practice that's why this is difficult right you can't just pay technicians more and expect then the outcomes to follow you got to do what martin's saying is you need to look at your workflows and how you're delivering care and the operations of your practice the more that you can get them to do what they're trained to do increase output and this is a productivity play this is wholly a productivity play is leverage your team more effectively from the top down everyone's got a, a role to play the dvm the practice manager the technicians the assistants the csrs and this has to be an orchestra with a conductor that knows what they're doing and makes everyone a first chair. And when you do that, the business performance follows, but it's not easy. Practically speaking for roles, and I wanna, I wanna keep playing like the, you know, the traditional practice owner to keep pushing you guys, but okay, that sounds good. How does that look different? What does the CSR do differently now? The technician do differently? The owner, how do I set this up? I mean, what it triggered for me I can't tell you like what's the job description, you know, what are the changes to the job description? But as Matt was making his comment, what it triggered for me is like also a team approach to really looking at the work that we're doing and is what's truly necessary, like only doing what's really necessary because bad habits creep into your process. And unless you sort of stay open to changing them, right, you'll, you know, end up writing paper checks to your vendors paper checks to your vendors what like that's not efficient yeah yeah i think that's a technology thing whatever can be done by technology allow technology to do it yep so increasing use of things like ai automation uh, whether it's through communications marketing or blood machine analysis to get all of it back. and it doesn't have to be these crazy ai driven technologies we've got solutions today that automate scheduling yep. um, exam notes communication with clients all these things and there's still a long way to go to build penetration in our practices with using those technologies and being fully engaged with them too i mean home delivery is another one this is where home delivery is a powerful way for practices to build their profitability and also compete with the chewies of the world and yet the engagement level with that is still is pretty pretty low in terms of workflow productivity then i mean really this is coming down to it's escape velocity moving from one model to the other and the shortage of technicians and being able to get and then keep those but being you know in a sense you run into a problem because let's just take for example the doctors in the exam room are performing the examination. They're not doing the history taking, but then they come in, they perform the physical examination. They're not there then going to take the bloods or do the paperwork. They're moving to do another examination and, and guide and steer a team of two or three rooms. That that traditional, what was it, safari back in the day that was that system of multi-room use. But then the animals are admitted. Again, they're handled by a non-clinician until they get to the point of whatever is the next legal step point where the doctor has to be, whether that's induction of anesthesia, it'll be different depending where you are in the world or the beginning of a surgical procedure, that that clinician is really a part of the weft, as it were, of, of the fabric of the day, but rather than the entire garment, which is how prof veterinary professionals often are, 
they're part of the orchestra, not conducting the orchestra. But then you need almost superconductors, you know, again, technicians who will manage the whole workflow through the day, perhaps, or administrators. I was just going to say, or how about a certified veterinary practice manager? Right. Right. Who can then take care of it. Outsourcing things like marketing. So your practice manager, and um, they can be an operations person and thinking of them in that sense. But you come against then the, when you're bringing young graduates out of practice, what do they want? Clinical skills, mentoring. How do you get them to the point of being capable of operating in the system if the system doesn't allow them to build the base skills? And that's one of the conflicts that I've seen in practice as well. The new graduates want to do the catheters. They want to do the, you know, the stuff that really the technicians should be doing, but it's their base build level skill development. You know, how do they grow to become doctors if they're not getting that? And again, that feels like, uh, uh, uh. and I ask the question because it's, you know, it's one of the questions on the mind of practice owners that's out there. It, it's a sticking point to moving to a very heavily, and doctors have to be willing to give up the power as well. So there's a whole other. And willing to accept the time that it takes to build up that confidence. I think that is one of the biggest barriers to achieving peak productivity with younger staff is the lack of confidence there. But you're right, they're hungry to learn. That hunger should be there. If it's not, you need to find somebody else. But if the hunger's there to learn and be mentored and build up their skill set, that's an investment. And you might not see the immediate reward on that investment, you know, for three, six months or a year. But if you keep at it, that confidence is going to build and they will become productive members of your practice. So it's something we have to definitely be focused on. Uh, and you, you and I spent some time, you know, with Dr. Rab when talking about mentoring and you don't have to do it yourself. You can now outsource it, right? This is part of the thesis of why it's a good time for a renaissance of independent practices. Like you don't have to be a massive corporate entity to have a mentoring program that you roll out to all your hundreds of practices. You don't have to be a massive corporate entity to, you know, implement technology that advances you, right? It's all available. It's just a matter of picking and choosing the points that are going to get leveraged. support ecosystem That's right. is all-encompassing around us now, if you're willing to engage with it. That's right. right. So you put the pieces, to, this is like, that's why I love small business, right? It's like putting the pieces together to deliver on your promise, so right, long what, as you know what your promise is. What bits would you hive off tomorrow and outsource tomorrow if you had your own practice? Oh, wow. <laughs> um, I think our, th our wheels are turning. We're looking at one another. Yeah. Like, where do we begin? I think there's so many. I mean, I think the scheduling, client communications, absolutely 100%. If you're not doing that, you automatically should be. If you don't have home delivery, you should be you should be doing that. I think there's a lot of opportunity for accounting and financial management mm -hmm. to be supported by another entity outside of veterinary medicine. <laughs> thank thank you practice. for not making yeah. me do the self-serving. Yeah, like, I thought oh, I'd do you that. have to outsource your bookkeeping. Uh, yeah, that's right. I mean, bookkeeping's <laughs> really complicated, right? And right. it takes a mindset to do that. But again, that's an area that there are, there are companies out there that do that. Well, and I want to stop there for a second because like part of the reason I'm passionate about the financial controls is because I have this growing hypothesis that organizations that are under tight financial control, it's a proxy for being under, like you're just better prepared to be under inventory control, HR control, IT control, drug log control. It's the green M&M's effect in the flat and the rider, isn't it? There's a little story about a band. I don't think it was ACDC, but it was one of the oh, rock yeah. bands that they would send ahead uh, this ridiculous rider of stuff that they wanted, which include all the, the usual good stuff like beer and bourbon and 
and you know and, and food but they always ask for a bowl of m&ms with all the green ones taken out and they didn't the faintest interest in eating m&ms but they had a very big interest in the detail focus to the venue they were going to and if the m&ms were not gone that, that correlated well with a shit show and they had to get their people really switched on to for the the setup and the sound check so it wasn't a disaster of a show and if the m&ms were out then it didn't mean it was going to be a good show but it was a much higher chance that the, the people they were working with yeah. had that that focus so and that's what you're describing there yeah that the another place to outsource is a, a lot of it right like yeah. tele telephony yep. uh, servers uh cyber security like you can now there are a number of, of great organizations that you can outsource all of that you don't have to be an expert in you don't have to worry about your server you don't have to worry about internet yep. connectivity and like you just hand it over to you know it guru or any of those other companies and like away you go yeah right? And then for things like mentoring or marketing or things that are non-core, because ultimately the way to be able to afford better wages is to be able to generate revenue effectively and productively and not do things half-assed. So whether you're working with a marketing, you just, it almost in my mind as we're writing the concept of building the perfect practice, just an exploratory journey as a quite a fun project to do maybe at Western, I'm just going to troll the booth and I'm going to put out a big ass workflow map, process map of client life cycle, HR life cycle on a wall and just go, right, what is traditionally done? What can be done outsourced so that to maximize the availability of the most scarce resources, the technicians and the doctors and see, see what pops out of that. I mean, walking that show floor I don't know how much time either of you spent on the show floor. I tried to spend quite a bit of time. It's mind boggling, like the complexity. But if you start to piece it out and break it down into like, oh, okay, I understand that that's sort of in the IT world. That's in the client communications world. That's in the HR world and recruiting world. That's in the, right? And so you start to like hive off the pieces and then you just need a diagnostic tool of some sort. And I argue that you're, well-prepared financials with using the AHA BMG chart of accounts is your diagnostic tool to say, okay, you know, where am I spending money? Where can I make improvements? Where do I need my, you know, what services do I want to provide that are increase my revenue? How do, you know, monitor my labor, my labor usage and labor leverage. And, you know, it turns into, <laughs> I mean, for those of us who really enjoy the pressure cooker of small business, it turns into a fun game. Yeah many of my clients would not think it's a fun game. They're like, it's like, but it's hard, isn't it? It's hard to separate out the, the fun bit of it is the, when you're looking at the numbers and it's almost an abstraction, it is more of a game at that point. But when you're on the front line and somebody leaves and now your work volume went up or you have to cover a shift or you're tasked with, holy crap, I've got my job, but now I've got to jump back on the shop floor and I've got this more strategic or operational job and I'm dragged back into the clinical clusterfuck, then it's really stressful to play that game. Yeah, and so that reminds me of the th third or fourth point around what you need to be successful as an independent owner. And it's like, you know, you need to be 
decent at contingency planning, right? So Matt and I have had the conversation a few times that I spend a lot of my time thinking about all the things that can kill my business yeah. and how I mitigate that, right? So, yeah. you know, whether you invest in nightmares constantly for me. I mean, it sounds so morose, but it's actually quite empowering because, you know, it turns challenges into uh, real, you know, opportunities to sort of overcome and like, all right, so-and-so just, you know, submitted their resignation. Like, you know, I've got, my entire team is really important, but we've got one or two people that, you know, if they left, we'd be in trouble. And so I always think about like, everybody has to have a backup, right? Everybody needs, there's no such thing as six single points of failure mm. and, you know, just playing out all of the scenarios and how likely they are to happen. I like that thought. And I'm, um, and we're miles off of our structure, which was entirely predictable. That was going to happen with, <laughs> with three of us in a room here. But I do think this is a, a fabulous conversation. So the four keys to success then. <laughs> I'm asking you this. You've not got your slide deck in front of you just now. Can you remember what they are for independent practices? Oh, man, you put us on the spot. I know. We, we do not have the slide deck in front of us. I got my laptop, though. I can open it up. You could do that. Yeah. I'll pause this. All right, let's pause it. Okay, we're back after a brief comfort stop and we left off talking about or just start segue towards things that are good principles or ideas that would help independent practice owners to build sustainably into this new normal, new future that we're moving. Yeah, And I know in the, the presentation that you guys did, you had several principles I think are really worth hitting on here. So let's dig into those. And I may throw a flurry of extra questions as we go through. I wouldn't bet that that wouldn't happen. So what do we got? What, what do we need? Okay, I'm the dumb practice owner. I'm the vessel to fill. I'm in the old paradigm. How do I move to the new? What yeah, for me? and I mean, I think, you know, in addition to some of the stuff we already, you know, covered off yeah risk mitigation you know focusing on leadership focusing on financial acumen there's some stuff that actually the industry can do and we had nine ideas but all right there could be more so let's get know. the juices running all right so you know start with student selection right uh like are we yes we're selecting students who've wanted to be dvms you know ever since they were six years old, but have they wanted to be business owners, right? Yeah. Like, you know, I jokingly say, but like, let's find those people who want to be DVMs, but also had lemonade stands. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. We need a passion for business as yeah. well as a passion for animals because these are complicated businesses to run. There's almost, although there's the element of the business element bringing in there as well. I've had some interesting conversations this week about the level of perfectionism that exists in, in that capture of very highly driven people who are borderline neurotic about getting the grades required to get into school in the first instance and very driven by this purpose-led thing. And so it, there's a selection bias on people who are more prone towards, and because they've used it as a life skill, perfectionism as one of the tools that gets them into school, but then causes all sorts of stress in school. Also the fear of flunking a year and now there's another $100,000 of tuition fees that you're going to have to pay. That wasn't there in my years. That wasn't a fear we had. 
But there's a, a palpable lack of enjoyment from students going through college now. There's, the stress level is clearly an awful lot higher. Speaking with students at the VBMA, and these are the business guys that are meant to be more engaged with this, and they're perceiving that stress level as being a lot higher. The interesting part was, and again, it was challenging one of my narratives that we're just we're selecting for the wrong people. There's this pressure on selection. And I was challenged by that by a, a colleague from Edinburgh Vet School who said, actually, the, you know, the numbers applying to vet school are dramatically less than they used to be. Either that or the numbers of vet school places are dramatically higher because it was about 10 or 12 to 1 when I went to school. But apparently, certainly in this individual's opinion, it was about 2 to 1 for places into one of the Scottish universities. So there's a lot to unpack in there but not just about business, but the people we do have to stay, being resilient enough to stay because the tool they use to get to vet school is a pretty horrible tool once you start putting it into you know, the messy world, the uncertain, the complicated, the moving target that is diagnosis of an animal overlaid with management of a communication with a human is horribly complicated compared to sitting an exam and requires different skills. Well, and you're, you're focused, you know, primarily on the clinical side of Correct. perfectionism. Like if you want to be perfect and and have everything perfect as a business owner, you are probably not going to be successful. It will certainly conspire against you. You're possibly going to go insane. Yeah, I mean, for sure, right? I mean, yeah, I can say this. You know, <laughs> fuck it, fix it later is like a really good management principle sometimes. Yeah. Like, like, let's just get something which is better than nothing that yeah. moves the needle forward and we'll just, dial back to yep. it later. I'm smiling over here because this has been the biggest lesson for me coming out of universities as an economist, the research economist, where you're striving for the 1% confidence interval on your on your data and your statistics here and having transitioned to leading a business where the 70% is success, right? If you're, you, you achieve 70% of what you're trying to do or you're 70% sure of what you're doing, you're in the comfort zone there, but it's hard to get there. That's me, Mr. 70%. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) That's how I got through university. Yeah. 51% sometimes. Yeah. Even sure. And so, you know, tied to the selection, this is our number eight is student training. Like it's, so you really need to do it hand in hand. I'm careful to say we need to select students that are more resilient or because I think that's a dangerous conversation, but I think we certainly need to instill training on the business leadership and management side in our veterinary schools, which is woefully lacking in that area. And resilience is something that's, you can train in what it is, but you have to experience and be supported through doing and understand that it's okay on the other side to build it. That's right, because it's building it and it's supporting it. Resiliency isn't just about the human individual condition to be resilient. It's about the resources and support that the companies and organizations are providing to sustain and support that resiliency. Yeah. And the sad reality is you have a lot of people who aren't necessarily resilient because the support system isn't there. Okay. The psychological safety of the company and the organization isn't there. Oh, yeah, there is a topic. Yeah, but, well, and again, sort of part of our thesis about independence, right? When, you're, when you've got close proximity between the practice owner and the rest of the team and the setting of the culture and the setting of expectations around client communication, how we treat each other, how we behave, 
vulnerabilities, all those kinds of things with that close proximity, right? I work next to the practice owner because I'm in yeah. an independent practice every day is different than, you know, the support that comes from a corporate yeah, the infrastructure. Gr the growing distance between the boardroom and the exam room feels like a gulf. And one of the things that's driving some of the cynicism, I think, in practice, and I think that's earned cynicism, not to say there aren't pockets of good leadership, but they rely on individuals being good to have a local culture that's good. And all, all these completely fractured local cultures give a very fractured vibe to a, a bigger entity organization where it is quite hard, particularly where they've been purchased. And I think an, an organization that has its own brand stamp or identity, like it or not, like a Banfield, where you've, you will have more of a, a homogeny to a culture like that because it's a more of a, there's a clear idea of what that is, or a very clear idea of what that is as a business entity versus a P firm that's rolled up 500 hospitals, all that had a subculture. And there really isn't anything other than veterinary medicine bonding them together culturally, but then layers on a value set on top feels very superficial and doesn't cascade down because there isn't a mechanism to do it. There isn't enough leadership engagement or experience in, in the organization because the owners eventually do or fairly quickly exit. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, we've talked a lot, like not all corporates are created equally. Correct, yeah. Right, That's and and I think there are some of the big corporates that are committed to solving that problem and, you know, maintaining autonomy, maintaining independence, the feel of independence, whereas others are not, right? They're just like, and those are sort of, the earned cynicism, I think, comes from that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I think that's a valuable point. There is clearly a spectrum <laughs> on of how this plays out in the marketplace. Yeah. Okay. Next point. Yeah. Encouraging students to seek out employment opportunities in independent practices. Yeah. I think, you know, you, you go to a career fair on a typical college campus and it's the corporates that are out there in full force. And that's not a, that's not blaming them, but the ability for individual independence to be there. They're locked out. They can't do it. I mean, it's a huge investment being at a recruitment fair. And so I think the awareness of the great employment opportunities in independent practices is getting washed out in the process there. So we need to have an active campaign to encourage students to pursue that. I've seen, I mean, there are, in the UK, there's the Federation of Independent Vets. There are group purchasing organizations, VMG, for example. I'm, I'm right. But oh yeah, VMG and even an organization like VMG, right. though, in terms of just the size, we're a lot smaller than like you know a typical large group right. corporate practice. And so even for us to get into campuses is difficult. That just underscores the point of an independent practice. But yeah, getting the organizations out there, the associations mm. that are dedicated to that, I think that's important. Well, I've IVPA here. That's right, IVPA. IVPA here in the U.S. Yep. And you know, the IVPA one of their stated mandates is to get enough members that they can advocate for a seat at the House of Delegates at the AVMA. Right. Right. AVMA. You know, I heard again this week the AVMA is, you know, the CVOs, the chief veterinary officers, you know, all get together under the umbrella of the AVMA and the CVOs are all from all of the corporates, right? And so, and, you know, mercifully, some of them are, are advocating for independence and not forgetting their independent roots. Uh, yeah. I had, a, had an explicit co hallway conversation on that. Right. But at the micro level for an independent practice owner, there is still the opportunity to go to a career fair in a, in a vet school. That isn't that hard a thing to 
do. And it, it is actually a very hard it's thing to like do. It's, it's, there are huge investments in dollars going to the university to have booths at career fairs and have a presence there. And it's out of reach for a typical independent veterinary practice. It's out of reach for an organization, I'll be blunt, for VMG. That must be a US thing then, because the UK is pretty easy to, if they have a, a career fair, like I've gone in and taken a booth and, and it's, you know, it's been relatively inexpensive. And has it been successful? To start talking to students. My booths are to go there and sell books and sell mentoring courses. Yeah. But I could have gone there just as easily as the practice. I mean, if, if you're a large practice, then the, you might get a return. I, I'm i not sure about the, the What return do you need? And then just to you, sort of challenge. You need, a, you need a successful hire. Right. One person. And in a class, if you can go with a vision, with a culture, and be present. Like, if you're not there, you're definitely not going to culture. But even if it costs you 10 grand... I mean, I I'd rather I'd rather lean on a on one of the vet recruiters and outsource that yeah sourcing and problem to an outsource to a recruiter. I'd rather spend that money with a recruiter mm. who has a process and can like. And a lot of those recruiters, you don't you don't necessarily pay them until they deliver you a hire too. So wow. it's, a, it's a sure thing. Con Some of them are set up that yeah, way. Contingency versus you yeah, know, that's right. Retainer is a another conversation like i'm personally bigger on retainer like find somebody who you like to work with pay them for their specialty and you know roll the dice the first time it's a roll of the dice but if you've found the right person that you i think you've, you've got better probability of success than suddenly becoming a recruiter and going to the job fair and telling your story and competing in the room with all kinds of people okay next point well, we talked a little bit about mentoring. There was a fascinating mm -hmm. conversation at uh, the last Vet Partners meeting just last week around sort of organized versus organic mentoring yeah. and, you know, job offers that promise mentoring to the new students. But of course, then it doesn't actually get delivered. It, it, it's vapor. Peter Weinstein told a story around that. So, yeah. Yeah, making promises you don't keep is a horrible thing for your employer brand. But I mean, I mean, the, the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons in the UK published data that said it was about fifteen months on average an associate, a, a graduate, will stay in their first job, and that's the fear that everybody has with providing support resources. Oh, they're just going to leave anyway. Is there any data from here that says how long people would tend to stay in that first job, or the influence that structured mentoring? of a kind has in a is a positive way does that exist there probably is i don't know i don't know it but yeah. there i mean like i'm very happy to see mentoring becoming a significant conversation in the yeah. industry because i think it solves some of that retention problem it solves some of the turnover problem solves some of the culture problem and i think what also needs to be re rebalanced is the expectations of the employer and by that i mean the length of time a person stays with a company, economy-wide, I'm talking about the whole US and probably a lot of other countries, has been declining for a long time. So you need to set your expectations. Gone probably are the days that you can expect, no matter what you do, for people to stay 10, 20 years. I want a Rolex watch. That's right. <laughs> I, got my I don't Rolex. think anyone cares about that anymore. I don't think that's important to millennials. I think they want security and safety and they want mentorship. So... Is it good to have someone for five years and invest in them and have a productive five years? Um, and I think that the answer is, yeah. So I don't think we should do it with the mindset of, 
well, I'm only going to do it if they're going to stay 10, 15 years. But I don't think that equation works anymore. I think people would settle for three or four. Yeah. And frequently it's one to two. That's a function of a poor culture or a poor experience. People grind and burn out. Whereas, I mean, mentoring feels like one of those magic things that will stick people for longer. And I certainly know in my practice, when you mentor people and look after them clinically and you mentor on the professional skills and just give them game time with a leader, it's hugely appreciated. And equally, I know from my work with uh, graduate programs, they're promised it, but then they get put into practices where the promise from the core offering, the people that are recruiting them into the businesses, is often not matched with the reality on the ground of what they're experiencing in the practice. And that's hugely damaging for the relationship and causes massive dissatisfaction and distrust. Yeah, you know, as you're talking, I'm reflecting on one of the corporate groups I know, big 250 plus practices. They've got a structured mentoring program that they've built for front desk support staff, for techs, and for early career DVMs. And so they wouldn't invest the time and treasure if they weren't getting a return, right? Yeah. So, so I don't have a number for you, but people are putting money into this. Yeah. And it's increasingly becoming more structured, more thoughtful. And again, like you can be independent and you don't have to do it all yourself. You can, you can outsource that. Absolutely. Okay. So mentoring is a huge pillar. I like this one. So we've got to demystify finance and um, we need more creative solutions to support practice acquisition amongst associates. It's hard for them to buy into a practice and we need to make that easier. We also need finance to be a common language amongst everyone. Do you think that, you know, obviously multiples and that being the determinant of price of entry to the ownership game have been sky high for, you know, a decade. And there's, there's almost a generation that is missing out on that opportunity of ownership where you rewind 20 years, the partnership model would have been, you know, find an associate you get on with, bring them on, teach them, train them, and they would have been waiting for their brass plate on the door to signify their, they had arrived as a partner and a stable part of the community. The deconstruction of the social fabric and our connection through devices, the, the rather nomadic nature that we have of, of moving around the, the country or the globe now, it's part of that the people don't seem to want an anchor so much. But even if they did, the price of entry at 10, 20 times the, the net profit of the practice is a price beyond anybody but the private equity firms. Do you see a point at which the private equity washes through veterinary medicine and, and price normalizes? And do you see an advantage in independent practices going down the route of saying, what's in it for the practice owner to sell to their associate versus the private equity person? Yeah. All good questions. I think the first one around, yes, I think it will wash out. I don't believe that we'll end up in a situation where every veterinary practice is a corporate practice, especially we do these things that we're talking about here. I think the so-called bubble of multipliers has popped. I think that we're seeing those multipliers come down. You know, I remember in 2018, we thought they were high when they were six or seven. You know, I just couldn't imagine that they would go up to the 20s and 30s, right? And practice owners are rational actors. This isn't a condemnation of a practice owner selling to, no. to private equity, right? I mean, 
why wouldn't you, right? That Correct. just makes yep. perfect economic sense during that time period. But I heard it from our own VMG members is they wanted to sell to their associates, but they couldn't make the economics work. Yeah. Because they knew, like Martin had said before, if they sold to the associate, things wouldn't change. They could walk away and know that the culture and the quality of their practice yeah, was would, be, would be continuous. That's yep. right. I think so. I think this is where Martin and I on stage ask you, what do you mean by creative finance? What's what's creative finance? Tell me out there. Yeah. So there are the longer term, the longer the longer a practice owner has to plan their exit, right? The more you can finance that exit with insurance and other financial planning tools. It's not a well talked about subject. It's high finance. It's super complicated. But like if a practice owner in their 40s lays out a long-term strategic plan that at 55 they want to sell to a an associate, then you've got a lot of years to squirrel away cash and help that associate finance the purchase, yep. right? So it's almost like vendor-financed, like a vendor-financed purchase, yep. right? But if you are 55 or 60, you suddenly have a health event, and you need to sell in 12 to 24 months, your flexibility, you just don't have as much flexibility. Right. And so like, it would be fascinating to take a bunch of, you know, 40 year old mid-career practice owners and put them in a room and be like, okay, what are your hopes and dreams? And what does that look like 15, 20 years from now? And how can you help your associate purchase the practice? I think there's a lot of interesting thing with the employee owned trusts mm -hmm. and certainly something I'm interested in in the future for my practice. But passing the torch of ownership to people you've worked with, mentored, coached, trained, developed, and you know they're bought into the, the practice, whether they're doctors or technicians or reception staff, or frankly, anybody who's shown commitment to the practice, feels like a wholesome thing to do, a fair thing to do, and, and something that our society probably needs more of so that people have opportunities. Yes, and you have to level the economic playing field, right? Yeah. So, per, so lenders, right? So a bank can only lend on the sort of book value, asset value of the business. Yeah. A private equity company, which limits the purchase price, right? Like if somebody wants to buy a, you know, practice for a million dollars and the bank will only lend $600,000, there's a gap, yep. right? Whereas a private equity company can purchase based on their best guess of future values, right? So if we're going to bring, we're going to synergize uh, and optimize and, you know, fantasize. rationalize and fantasize. Yeah, right. But you can make a business case and buy based on that business case because you've got free capital. A bank won't lend on optimize, synergize, fantasize, right? Yeah. So that gap creates a gap in purchase options. Right. Any other things that come to mind that can help the... Yeah, I think we've got a, you know, about three more or so. Right. But um, I think it comes down to ownership models. This is, this is our number three. And number two is developing shared ownership models, driving more of that, and supporting co-ownership models with non-DVMs. I think if we can support growth in those areas, uh, we're going to see more opportunities for independent practices to remain independent. Yeah, those co-ownership models, the, the the partial, the shared ownership models. You know, 
there are a number of groups that have stepped up to do that. Uh, Suveto, right, supporting veterinary ownership is one. I met a number of people over the last week who are sort of figuring out sort of partial, you know, will come alongside and take usually a majority share. It's I haven't found anybody yet who's willing to take a minority share. Kale surprise. Right. Well, because you're putting your capital up and Absolutely. You, want, you need you need to have control of the capital. It's a risk reward exchange. But I for associates that don't want to be, you know, full owners but and need some capital support and want some infrastructure and want some community and camaraderie, some of those models are highly appropriate and it is at least a good training ground to develop independence, right? And you're going to get support. There is a compelling reason why I can see why people would want to do it. You're part of something bigger. There's a support office whilst and the structure of a brand that actually is managed and yeah. isn't chaotic is there's something about that. When you're bought into the success of a business, you care for that business a lot more. Oh yeah. Right. And so I think that's where those shared ownership models can be really powerful, not just across associates, right? Like you mentioned, Martin, but across the whole staff in some cases, which some are doing. Yeah. 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 I met I met a practice recently that the practice manager is actually the owner. There are some state regulations around that, but that kind of varies state by state. But like that was awesome. And then I think lastly, you know, the industry, if we just continue to support the development of a robust ecosystem that levels the playing field between, you know, big corporate, right? Can you expand upon that a little more? All of the technology solutions, you walk the show floor, all, okay. the, te all the technology solutions that exist that Your sort access of, yeah. Like, platform access for everybody. Right. Platform access. And like, I don't believe that, you know, an independent practice has to pay more for a scribing software than a corporate practice does, right? And in fact, in some ways, they can implement it a lot easier because they make the decision that's their money, they're spending it, the, they can pull the trigger on it and they, use it. They're deciding it, not forcing it on anyone. Correct, yeah. right. Buy-in will be better. It's that whole playing field we talked about earlier, not just the technology providers, but marketing support, accounting and bookkeeping, HR and other mentorship, that whole playing field of supporters who come in and provide aspects to the practice and then allows the practice to focus more on the delivery of medicine. Yeah, it's actually super exciting, right? Because you can pick the style of medicine that you want to practice. Do you want to be a low-cost provider, which is totally a reasonable choice? Do you want to provide concierge care? It's also a reasonable choice. So pick your strategy, pick your team, and then Pick the technology pieces that you want to plug and play into that to deliver on deliver the efficiency and the experience. That the world is kind of your oyster. It's actually a really exciting time, which kind of tends to bring us nicely full circle back to why people might like to attend events like VMX without it being a, a sales showcase for them. But the big conferences all over the world, part of the joy of them is being able to look at what's out there. But with the clarity you've just articulated of who are you, who do you serve, and what do you need as a support network, support crew to deliver that service effectively as one benefit. But by golly, just the joy of meeting up and linking with other people who are excited about what you're excited with and the inspiration and the energy you drive from that is terrific, which 
I must say I have derived great inspiration and energy from our conversation today. So before we wrap up, are there any sort of last points? Like we've talked a bit about the where we've come from with COVID and the, we've come through the fire and, and our, our blade, I hope, has been toughened by experience of being in the forge and hammered crapless by the <laughs> bruising experience of COVID. The optimism that I get, although we're nerding out a little bit of these things, that's what I get from both of you is the optimism for the future. I'm feeling, and shoot this down in flames, but I believe you both to be very glass half full or glass is actually fucking overflowing and I'm going to eat the glass as well sort of people for this profession. But what have we left unsaid that needs to be said before we wrap up? Yeah, I think uh, it is really positive. There's a positive story here. And that's coming from an economist, right? So I'm a very strange economist. So so, so A, it's factual and it must be true. And B, it's unusual. That's right. But you saw it, like you said, in the VMX when you walked the halls. And it's clear that um, it's not just an industry or profession. It is a community. I think that's the wonderful part. And I think, I know, Mark, you've been in and out of different industries as well, like I have. And there really is nothing like veterinary medicine. These are dedicated individuals who want to make the world a better place through animal care. And it's a wonderful mission. And when your mission is sound, everything else falls into place. And I think we've been through tough times. We'll get through tougher times in the not too distant future, I'm sure, once again. And yet the fact that we are a people-driven, community-minded profession will always remain. I think that's always cause for celebration and optimism. I can't add more than that. That's, I mean, that sums it up. It's a pretty, pretty sweet wrap-up point. Yeah. Well, guys, thank you so much for, I know everyone's tired. It's right at the end of the event. So thank you so much for your time. This is a, a wonderful way to spend a couple of hours and get to know you guys just a little bit more. And uh, we will link up tons of stuff in the show notes from the show and, and link up to VMG and to vet books. But um, thank you for your time. Thank you for your contributions to your strands in this tapestry of veterinary medicine. Two of my favorite people to nerd out with. So thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. So that is a wrap for another episode of Blunt Dissection. Thank you so much for listening. Before you jump off and get on with your life, would you do me a little favor? Or maybe three. Favourite one, would you just do a quick shout out on social media to let people know you enjoyed the show? Favourite two, drop a little review onto iTunes. And favourite three, if you think somebody needs to benefit and hear this show today, please share it with them. The show has helped countless people overcome countless problems over the years we've been doing it. And it's recommendations and shares that allow that magic to happen. So from all of us here at Bluntness Action Podcast, to all of you out there, until next time, be safe be well and be happy.